Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1124, with guest Dustin Thostenson. Recorded Friday, March 27th, 2015. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. Richard Campbell. And we're here for another hour. Uh, Dustin Thostenson is here. We're going to have a great uh, failure-driven discussion with him. Uh, it's going to be awesome. But uh, Richard, how are you doing today? I am going crazy. Lots to go. I actually lost a show. It's been years since I lost a show. So you I recorded re- a run as radio and then somehow lost the file? Yeah. You know what it yeah. did? I, you know, I, we, we use a uh, high quality compression. So I take the wave file, I compress it into MP3. Mm-hmm. So I ran the compressor on an MP3 file because it always deletes the old files when it makes the new files. And because mm-hmm. the files were named the same thing, it just deleted them. And it's nothing that the recycle bin can restore for you. Cause it never went to the recycle bin. Cause it never went there. I even wow. grabbed an, on a, uh, a recovery tool. So even after you delete a file, you know, it just removes the pointers. Da, 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 da. Yeah, you know, you know that truth. You know that it, yeah. that's not true in an SSD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, in right. an SSD because the trim functions. That file's really gone. So <laughs> those files are gone. I'll be remaking that show. Sorry. Well, and you know, for the run as radio listeners, there's a little IT tip right there. Don't expect the same kind of recovery tools from SSDs. Nope. Now, any yeah. modern SSD, because of the way they recover space to maintain usage on the SSD, yeah, if you delete a file and it's not in the reco- in the uh, uh, deleted folders bin, it's really gone. It's gone. Gone, gone. No, no, we mean it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, roll the funky music because I got something kind of uh, fun and pertinent. So go ahead. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? So this is a blog post by Peter Bromberg. It's at tinyurl.com slash devtop10. And it's the top 10 rules for software development. Now, I'm not usually one for dogma, you know, that's like, follow this system. Yeah, this is the right way. Right. However, this is good to read because all of these points are are great points. And, um, you know... Uh, probably more for the armchair developer to just sort of get their feet wet and to be able to have a conversation about what's important in a software development project. But that's mm-hmm. not what really stood out to me. The thing that stood out to me was the, was the first top 10 list that's in this, which is the sort of the, the way that the, the, the checklist of how we develop software today. And it's kind of funny. Step one, order the t-shirts for the development team. <laughs> step two step two announce availability <laughs> step three write the code right step four write the manual <laughs> step five hire a product manager oh my god yes step six spec the software <laughs> writing the specs after the code helps to ensure that the software meets the specification absolutely <laughs> step number seven ship right step eight test <laughs> And in parentheses, the customers are a big help here. (laughs) (laughs) All software is tested, usually on customers. Nine, identify bugs as potential enhancements. (laughs) 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 Oh, kill me. And number 10, announce the upgrade program. (laughs) Right. That is not the list that this guy actually wanted to put out. No, no, no. That's the sort of the the list is how we do things now in what order we do them, you know. And, of course, it's so tongue-in-cheek, but, man, is it funny. Too (laughs) close to reality for sure. Yeah. So that's at tinyurl.com slash dev top 10. And there actually is a real top 10 list there for our top 10 rules for software development. Brilliant. Peter Bromberg. Nice find, dude. Yep. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1088, the one we did with Mr. Sonmez, with John Sonmez, where we talked about careers. 
Yep. And which generated a ton of great comments. They, those shows usually do. Yes, they uh, do. And I really appreciated Mark Scheicher's comment, which actually is a fairly personal one to me. He says, thanks for the great show as always, Carl and Richard. And John, thanks for sharing your insight with us. I got through half of the show this morning on my commute, and I couldn't wait to write in about Richard's introvert comment. He, I perked up when he mentioned he considered himself an introvert, who people laughed at when he said that because he presents on stage in front of large groups, hmm. I re- which I said exactly that. Yep. Uh, I recently finished the book, uh, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking by Susan Cain. Great book. And I love this book and constantly caught myself saying, this is totally me. And that makes so much sense now. A part of this book addresses the stereotype that introverts are shy and just want to hide in a dark corner and not talk to anyone. I consider myself an introvert as well, but I have a much better understanding of what it really means and how to use it as an advantage. The, quote, recharging the batteries in quiet is the key and what I really need. Yeah. As for presenting on stage, and Richard didn't actually comment if he enjoyed it or not, it's just that it's what I do. And yes, I do actually enjoy it. Hmm. After reading this book, I would guess that presenting on stage may not be Richard's goal and the enjoyment, but that it is the research and preparation for the presentation where he gets to focus on the task and can go into his quiet place and work on that. And that totally makes up for having to go get up on stage and present. And the funny part is we talked about this when we were at the Nebraska Code Camp, right? That sort of impromptu lunch hour thing. Yeah, I said, you know, the reality, one of the things I love about the Geek Outs more than anything is it's an excuse for me to finish research. Well, and, you know, we got to tell people what happened at the at the code camp. There was a, a talk that they scheduled or rescheduled ourselves to do at .NET Rocks during lunch. And we just looked at the schedule, said we have no time to eat and relax and, and you know, no time to to change during, you know, between shows and all that. So we just decided to um, push that uh, that uh, show to now. And that's this, is, this uh, show that we're doing today. Right. Dustin's show. And what we did instead was after we ate, Richard got up and he just started telling stories. And then uh, he told the he told the parrot story about uh, you know the parrot that talked that <laughs> controlled the environment with the dialogic speech recognition board, uh, right? And then you started geeking do, doing geek out stuff, and yep. people were just riveted. We yeah. went all over the map on that particular one, and yeah, it's just a you know okay, I'm an introvert, but. Yeah. Storytelling is a passion of mine and, and yeah. collecting, putting those things together. That was what was really fun about it, but it doesn't stop me from being an introvert. Yeah. So yeah, that was a fun, and I got a, I got a bunch of email about that too. People really enjoyed that sort of random lunch hour thing. I don't know what to do with that, but uh, that's what happened. You'll find something, I'm sure. I bet. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for Windows Phone 708, iOS, Windows 8, and Android. And that brings us to our guest, Dustin Thostenson. He's an independent .NET consultant leading Delta 3 Consulting. He's been a developer and trainer in the Des Moines, Iowa area for almost two decades. Experiences span from developer to educator to architecture to mentoring roles. To keep it interesting, he helps lead the Iowa.net user group and volunteers in central Iowa. To keep it real, he spends time with his wife and four kids. And to keep it random, he tweets at Dustin Sun, D-U-S-T-I-N-S-O-N. Welcome, Dustin. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And I have, uh, I've also got to yell out. Just because I don't know how far my kids are going to get into this podcast, I got to call them out by Chloe, Devin, Camille, and Darren by their name. Awesome. Oh, very good. Hi, hey, guys. Kids. <laughs> we had a good time at the code camp, didn't we? Oh, we had a great time, yeah. Who knew yeah. what the uh, political ramifications of software developers uh, taking care of people's jobs by automating them would be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and we're really pressing up against that these days as we're getting deeper and deeper into sort of high-level roles and, you know, jobs you thought would be un- unapproachable. And you're going, yeah, you know, there's an impact here. Absolutely. What did you think of the uh, top 10 list that I rattled off there at the beginning of the show? Does that sound familiar to you? I hope that the top 10 list was preceded and followed by the sarcasm tags because I know a lot <laughs> of developers that might actually think that is true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're going to the boss now saying, where's my T-shirt? We missed step one. 
<laughs> How are you going to get developers if you don't have t-shirts? Jeez. Yeah, exactly. And and test is the next step after shipping. That's always a good one. <laughs> Unfortunately. Too often true. So there's obviously there's been a lot of talk in the last four or five years. I know some great TED Talks have been on uh, a failure and learning to embrace failure and embrace uh, embrace not being able to do something or not to being able to do it well. And uh, this uh, culminates in your talk, which is failure-driven development. Tell us about this. Yeah, early in my career, uh, I heard the quote, and I can't remember who told me this. I've kind of morphed it into my own little mantra. But a, an expert is someone who knows all points of failure in a given realm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great. And it's not really what you do that makes you successful, but it's knowing what not to do. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I found that a lot of times when I get together with other developers, when we go to these conferences, one of the fun discussions is talking about their biggest failures. If you can get them to say what they are. I mean, a lot of people are just too guarded to to put themselves out there like that. I used to ask people during job interviews what their biggest failure was. And if they couldn't give me an answer, either they were hiding something or they weren't trying hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I also like the, I do this too on interviews and I, I like the, uh, the interview answer is if I had to pick my biggest weakness, it's that I try to do too much, you know, it's that I, I, I that I'm too awesome. well you know the the biggest failure question and i've used that too on interview questions is really more about how someone is able to admit and talk to failure and how they take learnings away from it Mm. like you know we are all going to make mistakes and and so forth but the bigger thing here is how did you respond where do you go from there so I had wanted to do this talk. I thought it would be kind of a fun thing to share my failures and other people's failures. So some new people who might be getting into contracting could learn some of those lessons and hopefully avoid some very severe missteps right off the bat. What I found was interesting is as I was compiling these things together, as I was calling other friends and uh, learning some of their failures, I found out that... uh a lot of this stuff kind of falls in line with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I was having a conversation with a friend at one point, and we were joking around about what Maslow's hierarchy of developers' needs would look like, which uh, after I did a little bit of research, I found out that Scott Hanselman had the same idea about 18 months before I did, of course. Hanselman did it. (laughs) (laughs) But I realized that um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is actually kind of not a slide in the presentation, but it was the template for the presentation. Because Maslow kind of tells us why we're doing what we're doing. What is it that's motivating us? And within each of those levels of motivation, there's a a group of failures that we can expect to encounter. Sure. Uh, I don't know that anybody doesn't know this, but maybe we just got to be safe and say, let's go over what the original hierarchy of needs are. Absolutely. Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's a little pyramid with five levels in it. The basic idea is that starting at the bottom, you have certain needs that you need to fill, and you cannot move up that hierarchy until previous needs are met. Mm-hmm. So starting at the bottom, we have physiological needs. We need Food, to be able water, to breathe. warmth, yep. rest. Yep. Exactly. Next up, that hierarchy is safety. Security of body, employment, resources, uh, security for your family, health, property. Mm, Right. The third level is uh, love and belonging. So having that friendship and family and intimacy. Yep. Once we get those things done, we can move up to that fourth level, which is esteem. Once people have their basic needs covered, it's very important for them to have self-esteem and confidence, respect by others, some achievement. And at this point, we're starting to get into some levels that um, a fair number of our population is not able to achieve. So mm-hmm. these, are, these are great things to be able to reach. Right. At the final level is uh, self-actualization, which is uh, creativity, spontaneity, problem-solving, acceptance of facts. This is where people really find that they're operating at their highest level, and they feel that they can achieve everything with the 
tools that they have. You know, the funny thing is there's a hierarchy like this in development, right? Like you, you get to a certain, I found this employing software developers. You get to a point where you've built a good team. They like each other. They work well together. They value each other's skills. You know, there's no amount of money you can pay people at that point to motivate anymore. Like it becomes a totally different set of motivations. Once you've got that basic level of functionality, it is the teamwork that matters. It is the sort of effort in mastery and self-autonomy that's way more important than money. And so much of business is built around this. I'll just dangle a carrot in front of you. Keep going and you'll get a bite. You can find out where a person is when you present a job to them by listening to the types of questions that they're asking. Right. If you've got, uh, if you've had some good years, and you've got your financial situation handled. I've got some friends who are 30 years old and have their house and cars paid off. They have zero debt. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't need to work for the money. Yeah. And so, they're, yeah, when you talk about a job, they don't lead with, so how much does it pay? Mm-hmm. That's just not important anymore. And what happens when the bottom falls out? You know, when you're, you could be at the top of the pyramid and all of a sudden security and safety falls out. And what happens then? Do you have to start all over again? Well, you're going to fill in those holes. Yeah. You know, if, if you lose your job, you're not really going to care how many people like that Facebook update that you had with a really snarky Justin Bieber comment. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if you can't eat, you're not going to be very good at work. Nope. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you, you bring up an interesting point, Carl. like as a leader of developers, if you're not aware of the fact that someone's changed in their hierarchy of needs, you're never going to be able to work with them effectively. Yeah, it's that number three, the middle one, you know, uh, relationships that that seems to, I think, uh, for most of us, come and go the most. Yep. That's and the how one do you, that can blow up, for sure. Yeah, that blows up a lot. And, you know, at least once or twice in everybody's life, they go through this crisis. And, uh, you know, how, how, do you, how do they deal with that? One of the things that I talk about in my speech is um, that friendship, that third level, the, the belonging. For some, time, for some people, that might be a reason that they go to a job. Mm-hmm. If they've got three different opportunities and they get to work with a friend of theirs... They might go and do that. Yep. Yeah, you see that a lot, right? Groups of friends come, they want to work together. They'll find ways to make that happen. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there can be problems with that, obviously. You know, I've had scenarios where I've helped people get a job in the same area that I'm working with, but they might not be on the exact same team. So the person comes in and they're excited to be working with me, but then they're on a different team that has a completely different culture. Yep. Maybe the management isn't quite as good. Maybe they don't have the same type of vision. So they're not able to keep the people moving forward in the direction that they want to move in. Or the same level of friendship, for that matter. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the culture pieces are really interesting. You know, the other side of that, when you bring your friends together, is that friendships often come with a culture that may or may not mesh with the culture that you're in. Yeah, and that gets to be very challenging for other people on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you bring somebody in who has a very specific skill set and they're very good in their field, but if they don't mesh in that area, it's eventually going to fall apart. Either they leave because they're not happy on the team or the culture starts to change and other people will leave. Right. Well, that, I mean, it brings up a great question because you, you know what's on the resume is skill set, right. not necessarily a belief. Like, how do you figure that out, recognizing that culture is that important to the equation? Well, the resume does have a skill set on it, and the resume is really great when you don't already have that connection made. Mm-hmm. Um, Des Moines is a rather small community. I think we're about two degrees of separation from all the other developers. So right. who you are and who you know carries a lot of weight. And a lot of times that culture, people know that you can do the job, but they also know that you're somebody that they want to work with. Right. I also find with these small environments like this, I, I did some work in the far north of Canada as well. When everybody knows everybody, people are really polite. Like there's only so many places to work and you just can't afford to alienate someone. Everybody's gonna know. Right. Exactly. All right. So to get from there to uh, failure driven development, I guess the first, uh, you know, this talk with Alan Stevens that we did, Richard. Mm-hmm. We, we sort of touched on this, you know, people being getting, trying to promote a culture at work where failure is not only tolerated, but encouraged. 
And uh, that that struck a chord with me. But that was the first time that it really, you know, he he was sort of hammering it into us. Right. Um, how possible is it to create that culture when you are a developer on a, you know, one of many developers on a team in a large company? Sometimes it helps to have simple mantras for the team. Um, a very common mantra lately has been the whole fail fast. Uh, for the team that we currently work on, our focus is make it work, make it right, make it fast. And making it work means that you're going to try a bunch of different things. And we might have two people spin off, work in parallel. Somebody will make one thing work. Somebody will make another thing work. And we come together and we see, is this going to solve our needs and pick a direction from there? Um, we usually try to protect ourselves uh, from making any major problems, have some automation around that so we don't fail fast and cause a catastrophic database failure. Right. But usually if you can try to put some wraps around how much impact a failure can have, it's okay. And, and the whole fail fast thing, there seems to be a real lashback against it around the, in the Silicon Valley and stuff. It's like, you know, fail better or fail forward, like all these kinds of ways to, to say, that's okay, you know, failing will, will, will just make us better. Um, you know, I don't really have a good answer back for that. Well, and it, yeah, I think the, you know, the reason there's a lashback against it is because you don't plan to fail. You just need to be able to recover quickly. And I think, you know, to me, the biggest issue around fail fast is this don't hide it. If you think it's going wrong, let it out. The sooner we can get past it, the better off we're going to be. Too often people are so afraid of failure that we allow a failure to continue for a long time because we we're covering it up. Yeah, and one of the things I like about having teams that are in open areas where there's a lot of communication, a lot of collaboration is people will focus more on how somebody recovered from a small failure rather than focusing on the failure itself. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's a cultural thing. There's some people who've been uh, working for a long time and they're very proud of the skill set that they have, but they don't want to expose any weakness. And that in itself, I think, is a weakness. Sure. Uh but it, and actually, you see the more senior people, more experienced people that have been through a bunch of failures and not died, just not afraid of it anymore. I wonder if there's just no substitute for actually failing to be more comfortable with it. Yeah, I definitely think there's a, that's a very good point. There is a, a skill set a person develops on how to recover from failure mm -hmm. as they do it more. It's kind of like riding a bike. After you've uh, fallen down because your wheel got stuck in a root between the grass and the sidewalk or you've hit a curb, you learn how to recover from those things. And right. I think the same thing goes with our careers. And, and to Carl's point, if you're a dev, like how much does this has to come from the top making failure acceptable? <laughs> the One of the things I've learned is whatever you're trying to do, eventually you're going to get some resistance from the top. Mm -hmm. So when people are trying to implement agile teams or maybe use a new technology, it works well from the grassroots, but at a certain point in the hierarchy, somebody high up is not going to agree with it. A lot of times what I've seen is people at the lower levels will work together and sometimes the right kind of manager will shield them from that exposure. You can have your failures locally, but um, hopefully the manager doesn't always throw people under the bus. But it's, it depends on the management. Well, and again, it's how people treat failure. All right. So if I'm an independent developer, what kinds of challenges and failures am I going to meet maybe at that first level, you know, where, where, where the rubber meets the road? For a lot of independents, uh, people will start off having that first need of, of income. And the first thing that people run into is self-evaluation. What am I worth and what is the market willing to bear? One of the things I had a friend tell me is never underestimate how much money somebody is willing to throw at you. Right. <laughs> so you don't, you don't always have to look at yourself and say, well, I don't think I'm this good in this area. And I, my, you know, my stored proc skills are really bad and they might need stored proc. So I'm going to keep moving my rate down. Instead, find out what somebody is willing to pay. What are they, what kind of value do they really need? And the first problem that I've normally seen with contractors is they enter an opportunity and they lowball themselves. And once you do that, it can be very difficult to get up to a market rate, especially if you don't know what the market rates are. Yeah. Um, a lot of times you have to have people in the market that you know and trust. 
Uh, sometimes people work with recruiters, which are great because they provide a very essential value. But you also have to know that you can trust the person that you're working with to make sure that they're not taking 50% of your bill rate. Right. Um, a lot of times companies I've seen will look at developers kind of like servers. And instead of judging each person individually for their unique talents, they might look at a problem that they have and say, let's just throw more resources at it. And this is the cost for a server resource, what we're used to paying. And they do that with developers at some point, too. So developers going to have low confidence and not think that they're worth that much. The company is still going to pay the same amount, but the recruiter in the middle might be taking a larger cut for themselves. Right. Well, and you also get into the mythical man month problem. It's like, if I just get more of these and keep throwing at it, it'll go faster, right? I could make a baby in a month with nine women. <laughs> nice, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you like that, do you? <laughs> well, and there's a lot of companies that still believe that. Just keep throwing more resources yeah. at the problem, but it, it doesn't work out that way. When he, he, it's this trap of treating people like cogs. Right. It's, oh, you're a web developer. You're a web developer. They're all identical. We'll just put more of them together and, and there you go. You'll be fine. The problem is, Richard, and, and I know you're not thinking of this in this way, but, um, you, you know, managers and higher level people do need a way to think of their resources in aggregates. So it yeah. is helpful. But I guess the, the, the trap is when they, uh, think of them as being, you know, as doing something together that, oh, that's what they do. That's, you know, and, and put them in a box, which sort of limits them in the brain. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Richard and Carl, have you guys, uh, you've done some contracting work before, right? Yeah. You're plenty of there. Yeah. Have you, uh, have you ever had a failure where you decided that um, I could either do time and materials or fix bid, and you say, "Oh, this isn't going to take that much time. I'm going to fix bid it." The no, great lie. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't done that in so long, uh, and then that, there's good reason for it. I've I've got I got burned on that early in my career. Yeah, and that We've was all got that was scars enough. in that one for sure. Yeah, th- yeah, that was enough for me. But we all do it. We all uh, think that that's an opportunity that we can throw a number out there because we think about the number of hours that we're going to have to work to code that problem. But sometimes we don't think about all the other aspects of our work rate. We don't think about if I'm doing a project by myself, am I just writing code for it? Do I need to spend time actually gathering requirements? Uh, Is the client going to provide any domain knowledge or do I have to figure that out and, you know, backwards engineer whatever their database is or create a deployment structure because they were doing copy-paste deployments. Well, there's an extra whammy here. Now that you've fixed your price, they don't care about your time anymore. They're not incented. They, you know, you yeah, you need to require, you, you built into the price requirements, but you can't get time with the people because they're otherwise busy and it costs them nothing to leave you waiting. Like that, that's a nasty trap to get yourself into. And right from the start, the developer is going to see the project the way he wants to see it. Right. And the client is going to see the project the way they want to see it. And they're going to have different views and they're going to have different expectations. Yes. And it, it can't end well. But does that mean we could never do a fixed bid contract? If your car is having an engine light on. Mm-hmm. Would you expect to go to the dealership and have them give you a fixed bid on what it would take to fix that? You know, often we do, right? But first you have to do some diagnostics. Once they come down to, yeah, we, you know, we think it's the distributor, we're going to need to replace it. Then the next question is, how much does that cost? And they're going to give you an estimate, which you're going to try and hold them to. If you, if you bring it in for an oil change, they'll give you that estimate over the phone, though, won't they? Absolutely. Known quantities. Yeah. So I guess that's it. If you've, uh, if you've done the same work over and over and over and you know all the ins and outs and you know the points of failure with that given project, you can probably get away with a fixed bit. Right. But I can't think of any shop in town where I could call them up and tell them, yeah, my light's on. What's it going to cost? Yeah, exactly. You know, plus or minus $10,000. <laughs> yeah. How much is your car worth? Okay. So as long as we budget in, we need to buy you a new car, we can work this out. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to fail at writing a joke for the middle of the show. <laughs> so, how did I do? 
Ah, yeah, you've definitely done some failure-driven something there. Uh, failure, <laughs> failure-driven writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, version two will be better. I'm sure. First, we need a T-shirt. Uh, yeah, T-shirts are coming. That's step one. Uh, it's time to give away a D Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with Dev Express UI controls and libraries, and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today, and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Marcello Donato. Congratulations, yeah. Marcello. Golf clap for you, sir. Marcello is picked at random. He gets a D experience subscription from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guest, Dustin, if you had $5,000 to spend today on technology, sir, what would you buy? I've been thinking about that question. Uh, is Abelard considered technology? Is which? Uh, Abelard 12. <laughs> the Scotch? Oh, oh Abelard. Yes. Yeah, it's that distillation is technology. technology. Um, that's good. You stuff. know, some of the stuff that I want isn't, isn't high tech. Um, I've been very impressed with the Sonos speaker systems. I would love to set my house up with those so the wife can control the sounds throughout uh, the entire house. Yeah. But, uh, one of the things that I really would like to do is buy a bunch of those Lego Mindstorm units. I was involved with a project here in Iowa where we help teach technology to middle school kids. Cool. And I would love for my kids to have more time to play with that, to be able to have the neighbor kids come over and also maybe set some weekend events up where kids can learn how to program. Because I think if you can plant that seed, that's really going to help some of our STEM problems in the future. Well, robots just make it so much more interesting, right? (laughs) Having something code that actually physically moves around the room. Yeah, the HTML, when I taught them that, it wasn't too exciting. But getting a robot. As soon as it turns a wheel... Yep, that's all we can hope for. The uh, most exciting thing that I ever did with kids was show them how to program a quadcopter. And that was, you know, just a couple lines of code and the things flying all over the place. And it really cements the idea that a line of code can have a profound impact uh, on your on anything. I mean, it, and it's true. A line of code is a very powerful thing. And yeah, my daughter... It. I took my daughter out to lunch one day with uh, some of her classmates, and it was after they had the the hour of code. And it was kind of fun because she was bragging about me to her classmates. Yeah, you remember hour of code? My dad does that. <laughs> a lot of the kids cool. had a lot of fun with it, so that was pretty cool. That's great. So uh, what are some of the other points of failure that we that we find that we must embrace and even expect? You know, there's um, just a couple of items going up the stack. You've got security. You know, there's there's technical security. A lot of times we don't think about that, especially as a contractor going into a job. Mm-hmm. Are they going to have the tools and automation in place for you to do your job well? If you've get a if you've got a XP computer with a, a spindle hard drive and a gig of RAM, you can't be successful. Nor can you be successful if you have production access. And you have to be very care, uh, very careful about including that where clause in your database update. A friend was telling me about a, a local startup that had that problem. The, the guy forgot the where clause and wiped out the database. They didn't have uh, backups. We've all heard about it, but sometimes that can actually make a, a, star, a small company fold. Sure. If they don't have that data. No, and I love that you're poking back down at sort of low-level requirements. Like for me bringing a contractor in, if I can't get this guy confident in the safety that he has a safe place to work, everything else is redundant. It doesn't matter. And a safe place to work can also include the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, mandatory Saturdays. If you threaten somebody 
that they will be fired if they don't come in and work on Saturdays because of poor project management in the first place. That's a very difficult place for somebody to be. Interesting, yeah. You know, that's a great way to think about this. You're poking down to the level of Maslow's hierarchy needs that undermines everything else you want. You touch that, you touch the safety third rail and you blow up all of that esteem value you could have tried to build. Yeah. And, uh, we could do an, another entire, uh, podcast on the security area of legal security. Right. That's, yeah. I think we've all had those issues where maybe you do some work and you don't get paid for it or there's, uh, fundamental disagreements upon what accepted means. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee Brandt has a really good view on that. He says, uh, the first thing he does is asks, am I willing to do business with this person on a handshake? Right. Right. If yeah. not, there's no amount of legal coverage that will help me through this problem. Well, because nobody l- wins a legal argument, right? Winning a lawsuit's no. like winning an earthquake. Yep. Right. Everybody's going to lose in the end here. So how do you not get there? And as Corey House was telling me too, he says the contract is only good as your willingness to go to court for it yep. because it takes time and that's time that I'm not getting paid. Yeah. And it costs a ton of money. You know, is the value, is the opportunity even there that this is going to be worthwhile? Yeah. When you look at confidence, some people will take a new job because they get to work on better technology or new technology. And they they want to build up their personal toolbox. They want to build up that confidence for themselves, Mm -hmm. which is is great. But um, you can have a lot of failures in that realm, too. I remember the – oh, years ago at a conference, I learned about Visual Studio 2005 – I thought, holy cow, this is great. Drag, drop, deploy. Yeah. I need to, I need to get a bunch of work so I can build up all these things and get them shipped off right away and make a ton of money. Uh, yeah, I found out that that whole drag and drop thing, it's not good to have SQL in your HTML. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's some consequences there. I've always, Mm -hmm. I've always done this, which is when something comes out that I'm interested in, and granted, it'd be harder now, but what I used to do was just, Go find a go find an application for it. You know, like um, it's it's not it's analogous to you know when you're buying a new keyboard. If you're like a, not a keyboard that you type on, but a keyboard that you play, you listen to all the sounds, and if the sounds inspire music, like you listen, you play a, a sound, and you go through all the patches, and you're like, wow, I like that. And if it, it causes you to write something, to to compose right there, just for that sound. You know what I mean? Then, then this is a keyboard that you should consider buying, and and you know, likewise, if you if there's a new technology that comes out, you you think, what can I develop with this? And you try something small, and and if it works, that's a technology you should spend more time with. But if you your first experience of it is, you know, there's too much friction, or or you don't understand it well enough, or you can see that it's going to take another five to ten hours, or or you know that that kind of thing, just friction in general. Then you may you may end up not using it. Yeah, I think you're also poking against that. Uh, how do you tell where somebody's at? They, okay, they didn't ask about money, but they ask about tooling or you know what products are we going to use. Now they're at that place where they they you know that's what they're worried about in terms of raising their skill level. And most people will agree that bringing a certain level of confidence into a situation is good. Mm-hmm. But I've seen some pretty big failures by being overconfident, uh, especially oh, when yeah. you get to that level of epistemic arrogance. Don't mm. let what you don't know cloud what you do know. Yeah. One of, my, one of my friends was at a place early in the days of Agile, and he says, hey, we should try this Agile stuff. Give me your five best COBOL developers. <laughs> I'm going to teach them TDD. I'm going to teach them Java, and we're going to solve this new problem. And they did. So the obvious takeaway is we must agile all of the things. <laughs> that yeah. hammer was awesome. Hit everything. Yeah. Yeah. So the, ne- the next project is uh, six teams all doing the agiles, and it failed. Right. The reason yeah. it succeeded was because you had five really good developers. Yeah. Right. That they- probably would have succeeded no matter what methodology you put in front of them. You know, that's an interesting point is that methodologies don't automatically save you. But it also speaks to, again, I've been doing the interview and the guy's more interested in the methodology necessarily than the tools or the wages. Have I got the hierarchy right there? Is that a better question to ask? I think so. I think that you're hitting on the right points there. Hmm. 
Yeah, again, I get a sense of where this guy's at because that's what he's concerned about. He and really, if you're talking about methodologies, are you talking about culture? Is he ask you're asking that question? Where do you what what I care about your culture? Where is that at? Yeah, and if you've uh, if you've got your confidence and you've got your money and you've got the people that you're working with, maybe the next level that you're looking for is that self actualization. Are you are you doing everything that you can do? Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing that I've seen several times, my friends and other people fail from this is, are we, uh, are we solving the problems the right way? Uh, de- developers will make fun of JavaScript developers or COBOL developers or .NET developers because every problem they see can be solved in JavaScript or .NET or Java. I never make fun of JavaScript developers, but I do make fun of JavaScript. and of course of course i'm kidding i love javascript (laughs) really it's it's a it's a great tool but one of the things you have to remember is it's not just using the tools that you know it's uh sometimes do we even have to use those tools i mean developers develop that's what we do right and when we see a problem we want to code our way out of it yep but sometimes you don't need the code there's manual ways that you can solve that problem until you know more about it. And then when it becomes an issue, all right, then we automate it. I'd like to put magic strings on the list of things that will cause failure. <laughs> oh, I hate them. Yeah. <laughs> magic strings. Magic strings. In other words, hard-coded configuration values. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, and then, you know, when it comes time to change it, where do I change it? It's <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Yep. Nobody ever comes at you with their magic strings. I mean, how do you even detect that somebody's headed down that path? Well, the best thing to do is to encourage people not to do it in the first place. No magic strings. Just put up a sign in, in, the, in, the, in the office there. <laughs> Thou shalt. Yes. So when you guys, uh, when you're taking a look at taking on work for yourself, are you looking at uh, opportunities that you can just apply your coding abilities to, or do you start looking for bigger problems that you can solve, which are probably going to need some technology, but might need some other creativity? I'm more apt to take a project where I can be creative than not. Um so that's just me. I tend to want to challenge myself when I take on a project. If it's something that's going to be, you know, just boring and uh, just typing a lot, then I'll tend not to do it. Even if they pay three times the rate? Yeah, I think so, because um, it, it's really about how you spend your time that that keeps you going, that keeps you motivated. If I would never do a job just for the money. I mean, money's good, obviously, but I would never do it just for that reason. I did that once, and I regretted it. All right, Carl. So you talk about it's how you spend your time. So that's uh, when it gets to that level of self-actualization, that's another problem that we have is that realization that there are so many things that we can do, but we have a finite amount of time. Right. Uh, so how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the opportunities to spend time with your family versus spend time earning income, which can pay for some more fun time with your family, versus uh, different charities that reach out and want your help or, that, or different organizations? I, I think that is a that is a very personal question, and the answer is going to differ from, uh, from person to person, depending on where you are in your career and what you really like to do. Uh, early on in my career, yes, uh, I needed to do everything I could to save money to... Uh, to, to save up a nest egg to buy a house, for example. And so I was more apt to take those jobs that paid really well, but were, you know, not as fun. You know, you get to a certain point, though, in your career where, you know, things are things are comfortable and you're now taking jobs based on, um, you know, of course, money is important. Like I said, it always is. But but given Project A or Project B, Project A is no fun at all, but it pays more. Project B pays okay, but it's certainly going to uh, be more fun. I will take Project B. 
What about the projects that don't pay at all that you're going to be able to use uh, your knowledge and your influence in the community to help somebody else out? Well, those are wonderful. I do, I do a bit of that myself. And uh, I know Richard's involved with the Humanitarian Toolbox, and you have some sort of charity thing going on too, don't you? Yeah, yeah. We got uh, a project called Des Moines Charity Hack, or DSM Hack, set up uh, last year. And we've done a couple of events now where we'll have charities come in, and we'll do a two-day hackathon where we had 80 developers and 10 charities where the developers were given their time to help the charities out. And it's kind of like a give camp, but there's there's a lot of opportunities out there for developers to do that as well. One of the biggest reasons that I got into this business was that I, and, and by the way, I mean the, the podcasting thing, the, the community. One of the reasons that I do .NET Rocks is because I wanted to give back to the community. And it's not me giving back. It's you, the guests of this show. And it's Richard and it's all of the people that we're involved with. I was, I had the fortune when I was young to be mentored by some really great people after being non-mentored by some really terrible people. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you, you feel like you owe your life to these people. It's like, I can't believe that you would put so much energy into helping me learn. And, and it's made such a difference in my life that I wanted to be that guy. Very good. I've, I've run into some of those same things myself. Uh, I help run the Iowa.net user group, which is just a small town, small time thing comparing to what.net rocks is, but we help people in the community. We help them learn. Um, I taught at a community college for some years before I realized that I needed to spend more time with my four kids and wife, mm. but it, it feels really good to help people out and then to see them in the community. And after they get a little bit of experience, paying it forward and doing that for the next generation of people, it's yep. uh, it's a great thing. Is a wonderful thing and definitely should be a part of everybody's time schedule to do something. Yeah. It's great that we can turn our talents into income, but there's a lot that we can do with our talents as well, too. You just have to try not to overcommit. Yeah, that's the key. Balance is good. Richard, how's the humanitarian toolbox going for you? Uh, you know, as fast as we can possibly go. There are days where, you know, how this all started was we were getting ready for that 2012 road trip. They said, we want a charitable component to this. And there are days where I think I should have just said, match me dollar for dollar for United Way. I didn't mean to make a charity. I just, you know, the ideas came together. But, you know, and part of that was how do I let my friends who are software developers be able to use their skills to help other people? Uh, and in the end, you know, that was me using my best skills, which is my ability to connect the right folks together to solve certain problems. So, yeah, where are we right now? Well, we're actually a legal charity and we're engaged on a bunch of projects inside of uh, various NGOs building software to save lives. It's crazy. I don't I, we we just got a call from the the Paul Allen Foundation. They committed a hundred million dollars to Ebola. And uh, they want to talk to some folks about some software. So, yeah, that was a crazy call to get. You know, you know we do cool things, don't we? Yes, There's we not do. a lot that would surprise you anymore. I mean, think about the folks we've talked to that we could even consider friends like Scott Guthrie and stuff. And let me tell you, you get a chill when you get an email from at un.org. Yeah, I can't you know, imagine. That's, yeah, it's something. And getting an email from the Paul Allen Foundation, I'm just like, oh, oh, okay. When you suddenly realize in one moment that this phone call could save lives, it could yeah, it would do real difference. You could make a real difference. You could change the world. Yeah, we were we we're working on a project to provide cloud services into Western Africa, which was a fun academic discussion when you're a technology person about how we're going to deal with latency and so forth. And when we finally connected with the guys on the ground that needed services, they were talking about fighting genocide, not latency. Hmm. That's yeah. a change in perspective. Yeah. So, Dustin, what's next on your to-do list? What are you, what are you, uh, what are you up to next? Next up, I'm coaching my kids' soccer team. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've got a couple conferences coming up. There's the Iowa Code Camp and uh, Kansas City Developer Conference coming up in the f next few months, but. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, a lot of, lot of personal time. I've spent a lot of time over the winter getting other organizations running. Usually I like to spend the time in the summer to hang out with the kids. And when's the next DSM hack? The next DSM hack is going to probably be at the end of next February. We found that the end of February is a really good time for a hackathon. We kick it off on a Thursday night and that way we have all day third or sorry, all day Friday to have the first full day of the event and then mm-hmm. all day Saturday. That allows people to go home, still spend Sunday with their family. Nice. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the companies around here are willing to donate their developers times to help other people. Uh, we could either donate time from a, a corporation to swing hammers for Habitat for Humanity. Yep. Done it. Or we can have developers, uh, you know, help build Habitat, Human- Habitat for Humanity's website or maybe take a, a paper process that was wasting a lot of their uh, volunteers' times and put it online. That is so awesome. Cool stuff. All right, people, fail often and fail well. What is the... <laughs> <laughs> may the and fail lo- be with you. May the fail be with you. Embrace the suck. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Dustin, thanks very much for spending an hour with us. Thank you very much, guys. Have a good one. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.